If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of April 4, 2021. The podcast that invented fireproof matches. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's flogrify the news of the bogus. And we start with a case that was heard this week by the Supreme Court, the real nature of which might have been hidden from you, the unwashed masses. If you've been paying attention to the media, either right or left wing, you would likely have been told that Coniglia v. Strom is a Second Amendment case about whether or not cops can seize handguns via the community caretaking exception. In fact, What's being threatened isn't just our firearms, but the sanctity of our very homes. The exception comes from KDV Dombrowski, which found that a warrantless search of the car of a person arrested for drunk driving was not a Fourth Amendment violation since the car had constituted a hazard to the highway. Therefore, the police could seize custody of the car for purposes of removing the hazard to the roadway. So, in Coniglia... Police in Cranston, Rhode Island, performed a wellness check on Edward Coniglia in 2015 after his wife called police reporting that he might be suicidal. And this is why pretty much any defense attorney will tell you that they get people coming into their offices saying they will never phone the police again for anything. The elderly couple had had a heated argument, and at one time Edward put an unloaded handgun on the table and said, Why don't you just shoot me and put me out of my misery? She decided to go spend the night at a motel, but concern for her husband caused her to make the call to police the next morning. Edward denied he was suicidal. Officers insisted he undergo a psychiatric evaluation at a local hospital, and he was immediately discharged. But, while he was gone, police seized two handguns from the home without a warrant and refused to return them until Edward brought a civil rights lawsuit. As justification for the seizure, police cited the community caretaking exception, which both the district court and the First Circuit said absolutely applied to private homes and not just public highways. Coniglia's lawyer, Shade Dvoretsky, pointed out that the whole purpose of the Fourth Amendment is to protect the sanctity of the home, and there would be nothing of that left if police could just yell, Community caretaking! every time they felt like doing an unwarranted search. What followed is absolutely bewildering, with the judges invoking Albert Camus, crying babies, Kojak, mask ordinances, plague rats, Vincent Van Gogh, and I'm pretty sure that I've fallen and I can't get up commercial. Chief Justice Roberts pointed out the example of a missing elderly woman, which prompts police to check her home to make sure she's okay and not lying on the floor unable to get up. The back and forth contained a lot of hair splitting. He even pondered whether it could apply to Andy Griffith, but not Kojak. And this really shows you how out of date they are on their pop culture. With opposing counsel, his example was that of a cat stuck in a tree. Justice Thomas, ordinarily a fairly withed kind of guy, wondered where it was in the Fourth Amendment that a wellness check was specifically precluded. Breyer brought up the crying baby in the plague rats, and even Typhoid Mary going around visiting everybody's houses. That, according to accounts, actually resulted in a couple beats of stunned silence. Kavanaugh couldn't even seem to keep the facts of the case straight. He asked Voretsky why it was that the defendant's wife asking for help wasn't enough of a reason for enter the home. 
Dvoretsky had to point out that they had already entered the home and found out he was okay. Even that seemed to leave Kavanaugh unconvinced, and he said that, quote, is not a good result. Alito, to his credit, wanted opposing counsel Mark DeSisto to say where the line was, preventing a life-threatening injury, serious injury, definable quantity of property damage. DeSisto didn't seem to want to play and kept saying that the standard of reasonableness only applied to criminal cases. I don't know what it says when it's Sotomayor who's the voice of reason. She said, I think what everyone has forgotten here is that, at least in this situation, there was no immediate danger to the person threatening suicide and no immediate danger to the wife because the suicidal person was removed to a hospital. She also pointed out, quote, Missing here is the next step, which is going into the home without attempting to secure consent from the wife and seizing the gun and then keeping it indefinitely until a lawsuit is filed. In other words, the complaint is not the police entered the house to conduct a wellness check. It's that they made sure the person wasn't suicidal and then stuck around and took the guns. The Biden administration filed an amicus brief in the case where they said, quote, Requiring a warrant could risk transforming collaborative activities geared toward ensuring public safety into an overly formal or even adversarial process in which government officials' ability to work directly with the community is diminished. Oh, boo-hoo. Their brief argued that, even though Conigli had been sent off for a mental health evaluation, it was still justified for them to take the guns as long as there's a chance that someone might be suicidal in the future. Sorry, Joe Bai, but that isn't how justice works. The Biden admin said that even if it were a violation, qualified immunity should prevent Coniglia from suing. Wonderful. Remember that Biden is both anti-gun and pro-police. He pretends he's not tough on crime Biden he was known for up to and even during the 2020 campaign, but now it's not a very popular position so he has to hide it. But his brief to the court shows that he is still just as much pro-cop and anti-rights as he's ever been. Voretsky pointed out, quote, Nearly every criminal violation has public safety implications, so dispensing with the warrant requirement whenever police can point to a health or safety motive would eviscerate the Fourth Amendment. Virtually any criminal situation can also be described in health or safety terms. For any situation involving drugs and alcohol, police could just say they were going into the home in order to make sure that the suspect was okay. As senior attorney Robert Frommer of the Institute for Justice, who filed an amicus brief, said, quote, the Founders wrote the Fourth Amendment to prevent abusive and arbitrary searches and to make us secure in our persons and property. But the lower court's decision treats our security as expendable whenever law enforcement can think of a reason to enter your home. The Supreme Court will rule on the case this summer. Here's hoping they show more sense than they did during arguments. If you're looking for ways to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand advertisements, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to listen to the podcast and all of my videos on BitTube.tv or LBRY.tv to get cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. Or if you listen to the podcast at the podcast page, you'll also generate crypto. You can also go to airtime.bogosity.tv to get the airtime extension and generate crypto for yourself and the creators on the web anywhere you go, including my YouTube channel. 
Get five tubes free just for installing the extension and signing up, and then simply browse the web as normal. Easily monetize your favorite creators and yourself with cryptocurrency without advertising on BidTube.tv or LBRY.tv or with the Airtime extension at Airtime.Pagosity.tv. More pushback by political cronies against the so-called gig economy. They kept crying price gouging at the fees DoorDash was charging for deliveries and instituted price caps. Spoiler alert, they didn't work. According to NBC News, of the 68 jurisdictions that imposed food delivery caps, DoorDash added additional fees in 57 of them. Turns out, food delivery costs money. Who'd have thunk? The lockdowns during the pandemic have caused people to rely on food delivery more and more, increasing demand for the service. So the prices aren't surprising to anyone who's taken basic economics. But these jurisdictions have capped commissions at usually 15% of the total cost of orders. That's what DoorDash can charge restaurants. But if they can't charge restaurants for the service, who's the only other party they can charge? That's right, consumers. Some consumers will see on their receipts items like regulatory response fee or Oakland fee. And the politicians, like Oakland City Council member Dan Kalb, hadn't even realized it until NBC pointed it out. Quote, I was not anticipating that there would be this extra fee. Gee, thanks for admitting you don't understand even the most obvious unintended consequences of your regulations. Quote, But I'm not sure that I can stop them from doing that. It is concerning that the fee might be misinterpreted that the city of Oakland is charging something. But you are! The money might not go to you, but your law gives the consumer an increased price so your crony restaurants can keep some more profit. Uber and other companies have had to add on additional consumer fees in dozens of jurisdictions, and Grubhub threatened a legal challenge if these caps are extended beyond the emergency health order. Now, DoorDash, for the first time, has hired lobbyists to represent them in Oakland and other cities. This is the capture, people. Once again, we see that it is not the businesses who strong-arm governments into getting into bed with them, but the other way around. I really don't get how DoorDash is the bad guy here. Without them and Grubhub and Uber Eats, a lot of these restaurants would have had to close down forever, thanks to the politicians enacting lockdowns that, it should be said again, have not been shown to make things even marginally better. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age, so go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world, and they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. 
You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. Well, finally, there's some good news out of California. Their Supreme Court has unanimously said that it's illegal to keep people locked up just because they can't afford to make bail. Now, they didn't eliminate bail, but they did recognize that setting bail beyond what someone can afford is the same as denying them bail entirely. For most of the history of this country, the sole purpose of bail was to ensure that the defendant would show back up in court. They couldn't deny bail to someone who was likely to show up, and if it couldn't be assured by some other measures such as travel restrictions. Generally, people were released under their own recognizance, since the penalties for skipping bail were generally harsher than anything they'd usually be facing. Then came the Bail Reform Act of 1984, which was one of the biggest blows to the presumption of innocence ever. Instead of being limited merely to a flight risk, it instigated a form of pre-crime, Bail could now be charged to anyone who posed a danger to the community. Evidence of this danger consisted of things like being accused of a nonviolent drug offense. Bail can also be denied if the funds are likely to have come from an illegal source, even if the defendant hasn't been found guilty of anything yet, and so there's no proof that any funds are illegal. Oh, and by the way, the lead co-sponsor of the Bail Reform Act of 1984 was one Mr. Joe Biden. Just saying. The result is, in most places including California, cash bail is the default, demanded even when there's no question of the person being a flight risk. The California Supreme Court ruled, Underlying this arrangement is a major premise, that the state has a compelling interest in assuring the arrestee's appearance at trial and protecting the safety of the victim as well as the public. Yet, those incarcerated pending trial who have not yet been convicted of a charged crime unquestionably suffer a direct grievous loss of freedom in addition to other potential injuries. In principle, then, pre-trial detention should be reserved for those who otherwise cannot be relied upon to make court appearances or who pose a risk to public or victim safety. But it's a different story in practice. Whether an accused person is detained pending trial often does not depend on a careful individualized determination of the need to protect public safety, but merely, as one judge observes, on the accused's ability to post the sum provided in a county's uniform bail schedule. So basically you have two classes of citizens, those who can afford to bail themselves out and those who have no hope of making bail and therefore have to stay incarcerated even though they haven't been found guilty of anything yet. The case stems from a writ of habeas corpus from Kenneth Humphrey, a 66-year-old man who was arrested for robbery and burglary. Humphrey sought to be released on his own recognizance, citing his age, community ties, and his unemployment and financial condition. He also pointed out that he'd been accepted into a substance abuse and mental health treatment program set to begin the next day. The prosecutor had requested $600,000 bail, the standard amount on the bail schedule for these crimes. The court, as you probably guessed, sided with the prosecutor. The Supreme Court pointed out that incarceration impairs the ability of the accused to prepare a defense and puts them at risk of losing their jobs, homes, and custody of their children. They found, 
The common practice of conditioning freedom solely on whether an arrestee can afford bail is unconstitutional. Other conditions of release, such as electronic monitoring, regular check-ins with a pretrial case manager, community housing or shelter, and drug and alcohol treatment, can in many cases protect public and victim safety as well as assure the arrestee's appearance at trial. What we hold is that where a financial condition is nonetheless necessary, the court must consider the arrestee's ability to pay the stated amount of bail and may not effectively detain the arrestee solely because the arrestee lacked the resources to post bail. Here's hoping other state Supreme Courts and the U.S. Supreme Court eventually follow suit. And what's next on the chopping block? Can it be plea deals? Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to pedunculate this week's biggest bogani matter. Ignore the crazies. The COVID-19 vaccines are safe and they work. And that's another thing that's kind of amazing about what COVID policy has done to people's minds. Even a lot of libertarians are saying that the COVID vaccines are experimental and untested and everything else because they're not FDA approved. Do libertarians not read Dr. Mary Ruart's Healing Our World anymore? FDA requirements are crazy, cost way more lives than they save, waste hundreds of millions of dollars, greatly reduce the number and types of drugs available to us, and, as we pointed out almost three years ago, most of their rules are completely unconstitutional. And search the archives of this podcast. Their bogosity in all sorts of different areas is legendary. And it's pretty much been confirmed that, in the case of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, we didn't actually need them. Despite the fact that there are no FDA-approved COVID vaccines, these both were shown to be around 95% effective at preventing infections after two doses, with the other 5% having reduced symptoms. Those statistics have just been confirmed by three months of real-world data, with the added data that 80% were still completely protected after a single dose. In addition to CDC statistics from thousands of frontline workers, there's a study from Israel, which was among the first to offer the vaccine, and from long-term care facilities in the U.S. This includes vulnerable populations such as the elderly and those with serious health conditions. There may be some variance in how different groups respond to the vaccine, but so far no group has shown an efficacy rate below 88%. There are also open questions about how long the immunity lasts and what happens if you get two doses from two different brands. 
But the fearmongers and the naysayers have all been put to shame by the real world once again. There's no super COVID out there waiting to bust through our immunity. No one is dying from the vaccines. There's no post-vaccine wave coming. And herd immunity is still the best policy. It's just nicer to have it with vaccines instead of relying on post-infection immunity. Hmm, maybe we don't need all those years of FDA requirements after all. This is something to shove in the faces of fearmongers next time something like this happens. You might also want to remind them of the FDA's complete inhibition of things like incredibly necessary novel antibiotics. Of course, there's no doubt that the FDA and their apologists will continue to fearmonger about how necessary they are and how there'll be all these piles of corpses without them. Hopefully, this is something else people will be a bit wiser about after the COVID experience. So all of that makes the FDA this week's biggest bogarney emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot TV. And now let's attitudinize this week's Idiot And this week it goes to the SEC for a transparently bogus move against cryptocurrency with their actions against the Library video sharing technology. Library is developed and run by Library Inc., who has been battling silently with the SEC for something like three years. Now they've spoken out as a complaint levied against them would declare most cryptocurrencies to be illegal securities. The SEC accuses the platform of selling unregistered securities to financial investors and platform users between 2016 and 2020. They're seeking a permanent injunction to prevent the company from selling any more tokens, disgorgement of all funds with interest, and civil penalties. No one complained. No one can point to a victim. They aren't even alleging fraud or any other kind of harm committed by anyone in the company, and no individuals have been charged. It's another round of Morton's whack-a-mole the government is playing with cryptos. The IRS says it's property. FinCEN says it's a commodity. The SEC says it's a security. And the Commodity Futures Trading Commission says it's money. But the SEC is basically saying that if you sell a cryptocurrency token while actively improving or marketing how that token is used, then it's a security. It doesn't matter if you're in the U.S. or where you're incorporated. It doesn't matter if the tokens were mined or purchased on the market. This is so broad that basically any cryptocurrency still under active development is a security. So maybe Litecoin's okay. 
but it might apply to Ethereum developers working on Ethereum 2.0, Dash developers working on Dash platform, or even just Monero developers fixing bugs. If you sell any of your crypto while doing so, you've run afoul of the regulations according to this SEC action. Library launched in summer of 2016. They didn't sell any tokens for more than a year after it was up and running. They never sold enough to manipulate the market or dump it. In a statement, the company assured everyone that no matter what, the library network will still be up and running. It's basically impossible to shut it down. If you want to make sure your LBC is safe, download the library app. They wrote, The library network is robust and decentralized, and far harder to disrupt than Library Inc. Hundreds of people across six continents contributed to Library last year. Come on, Antarctica! Most of them don't work at Library Inc., and we don't even know who many of them are. Even if Library Inc. is shut down by the SEC as a result of this lawsuit, the library network will continue to function and grow through the effort of the distributed library community. They specified the following that the SEC is calling unregistered securities offerings, quote, $10,000 worth of credit sales to Shapeshift in July of 2016 to facilitate distribution to their users, several hundred thousand dollars worth of credit sales to an unnamed group in 2017 and 2018, despite that group explicitly saying they're for use on the network, and several million dollars worth of credit sales on exchanges over a period of several years only after the library protocol was completely functional and had been in use for over a year and always a small portion of private sales. They've even called tipping 25 cents worth of credits an unregistered security transaction that must be registered and tracked. Imagine having to do that every time you purchase a cup of coffee or a pack of gum. They wrote, We do not believe that the library credit is a security subject to SEC regulation. The SEC claims that credits have no use other than speculation, which contradicts the facts and history of experience on library. The library credit serves an integral function in our network. It allows individuals to create an identity, tip creators, and publish, purchase, and boost content in a decentralized way. Millions of people have used it this way, and many were using it well before we sold any tokens to anyone. The SEC is completely ignoring this. They also point out, quote, The SEC is not alleging fraud. Library Inc. conducted no ICO. Library Inc. did not breach any fiduciary duties. Library Inc. at no time indicated that library credits were an investment and consistently discouraged purchasing credits for this purpose. Library Inc. did not sell any tokens until after they could be used on a functional network. A previously stated key element by the SEC in how they assess token transactions. As for their attempts to settle, the company wrote, The SEC declined to offer any terms that would have made it viable for U.S. citizens to exchange tokens or to allow Library Inc. to continue to operate. We were willing to give them a pound of flesh, but they were only interested in our head. And as is typical of regulators and other bureaucrats, quote, We repeatedly asked the SEC for guidance on how it would be possible to run the company legally. The SEC said that they could not tell us how to operate legally, but could only tell us that we were breaking the law. In addition to being a big threat to blockchain technology companies, quote, This case is also chilling for the startup scene in the United States more generally. We've acted in extremely good faith, attempted to follow all the rules, and complied with the SEC at every turn. We would be hesitant to start another company in the United States in any cutting-edge field, as cutting-edge fields frequently have unclear regulations. The company says they've already spent more than a million dollars in legal fees. 
Library Inc. CEO Jeremy Kaufman gave some more information on Twitter. Quote, We've spent several hours attempting to get a Harvard-educated securities regulator to understand that in a market in which a good is freely traded, it is impossible to fix the price. He literally brought it up again in a call the other day. Why can't you just make all credits always be worth 10 cents? Hey, Kaufman, he's from Harvard. He doesn't understand economics. Quote, The regulators continue to assert that library was not a finished technology. I asked them if they could name a single online technology they use that does not continue to undergo improvements. They could not. He points out this is a big reason why all cryptocurrency is at risk. Now check out this idiocy. The regulators asked for every version of the library.com website. We told them it was available publicly online via GitHub. For those of you who don't know, GitHub records everything, every last little typo fix. You can walk through the entire history of the site and see the changes in as granular a way as you want. It's all publicly available, and it's exactly what the SEC asked for. And could you possibly want any company more open than Library Inc.? Anything you could possibly want to know about how they operate and their history is publicly available, right at your fingertips. After glazing over and drooling on themselves, the SEC asked again for what they'd just been given. Apparently, they don't even understand how web development works. Quote, We ended up having to print out copies of the website at regular intervals throughout history and mail them. Unbelievable! They're taking this action against cryptocurrencies, and they don't even understand how GitHub works? Quote, We call them bureaucrats, but they behave like the mafia. The SEC refused to put things in writing and regularly threatened us with busy work and to run up costs because we refused to concede that all cryptocurrencies are securities. I have, like, a lot more stories like this. The company doesn't expect the matter to be resolved in 2021. But seriously, they don't even know how to develop websites? Or even simple software? There's no way the SEC cannot be this week's... Well, that wraps up this Things Certainly Were Different Before All These Newfangled Changes edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Frederick Douglass. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password.
LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now.